It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, it may get a little more complicated to get a Big Mac. McDonald's is studying whether to close some of its dining areas, uh, perhaps all of the restaurants, because of COVID. Uh, Reuters obtained uh, some correspondence in which McDonald's is telling its franchisees, you got to take a look at this. In fact, it's saying if you have a McDonald's restaurant in areas where COVID cases are high, you should close right now. Uh, you know, what's kind of troubling about this is that it, it's a whole sense of deja vu when most restaurants, almost all restaurants, uh, had to go to takeout or, you know, seating outside. And it just shows you where we are right now, what, 156,000 daily new cases. Uh, maybe that will subside soon, but uh, a lot of uh, companies taking a look at both whether or not they should require their employees to have vaccines. A lot of corporations moving in that direction. And if you're a retail industry where you serve people directly, like McDonald's, and I'm sure Burger King and Wendy's and the others are looking at this as well, um, this is a real dilemma. You know, I often find interesting scientific results on a website called Study Finds. And here's one based on a group in Germany conducting a uh, major study saying that those who postpone their retirement actually end up with stronger cognition and thinking skills. Um, if you, according to this study, the authors concluded that if you work uh, up until the age of 67, that helps slow any cognitive design and protects against the kind of impairment associated with Alzheimer's. And this was true across genders, education levels, job fields, what kind of work that you did. Uh, now, it, it seems perfectly intuitive to me that if you're working, if you're engaged, it helps keep your brain sharp. Uh, as opposed to, you know, sitting around uh, at home and playing golf and waiting for the early bird. I mean, I'm joking here. And, and obviously, it's an individual decision. And just as obviously, a lot of people don't really have a choice about retiring early. They're, for economic reasons, they have to keep working. Uh, but it is interesting. The brain works in mysterious ways. All right, lot to get to here. So let's dive in. Story number one, it's official. It's over. The last American troops are out of Afghanistan. We have lost that war in what can only be described as a global humiliation. And now comes the aftermath. Uh, the August 31st deadline, you know, with the time difference, has passed. And here's the problem, among many problems. And I want to get into a much deeper dive. In fact, I have a column uh, that I worked pretty hard on today on foxnews.com about the 20-year war. And the lessons learned in Vietnam, in Iraq, and now in Afghanistan, which is, you know, for, we have the most powerful military in the history of mankind, and yet there are limits to what it can accomplish when you get bogged down in these civil wars that go on for years and years and years, and finally public opinion in the United States will no longer support it. And I, I kind of hearken back, as before I was born, of course, but to the debate in 1949 over who lost China. When the communists took over mainland China, Harry Truman got blamed, uh, his Secretary of State Dean Acheson got blamed. But, you know, with the sweep of history, we can see the United States didn't have the power to prevent a communist takeover there. Now, we all thought, or LBJ thought, Nixon thought we could prevent a communist takeover in Vietnam. That didn't work. Uh, so this whole sort of who lost Afghanistan, and this is in no way whatsoever letting Joe Biden off the hook for this horribly botched and terribly executed 
uh, exit from Afghanistan, the, the severe miscalculations. I, I've been talking about that, writing about that every day for two weeks. But you can't blame the entire war on Biden because he came in at the end. When they, you could argue the war was already lost. What we were doing what we, was we were trying to hold the stalemate. We're never going to win this war. Uh, so I have more on that in the column today. But to get to the thing that's most troubling today in this snapshot of time, Washington Post editorial. This is the newspaper that supported Joe Biden, that went after Donald Trump, uh, says the following. Enormous as it is, number of people evacuated by air from Kabul since the end of July, about 122,000, is not large enough. Thankfully, many thousands of American citizens and third country nationals and Afghans who work with the U.S. were able to make it out. But, says the Post, thousands of people did not, including former U.S. interpreters and their families and Afghans classified by Biden and his administration as vulnerable. As security worsened in the wake of the terrorist bombing, at the airport by ISIS-K. Um, time and space ran out for these people. Here's the Washington Post bottom line. This is a moral disaster, one attributable not to the actions of military and diplomatic personnel in Kabul, who have been courageous and professional in the face of deadly dangers, but to mistakes, strategic and tactical, by Biden and his administration. And there's simply no getting around that. And by the way, there are still, according to the State Department estimates, 100, maybe 200, or that could be low, it could be more, Americans stranded in Afghanistan. Now, leaving aside the ones who decided to stay for family reasons, some of them want to get out. Uh, Chris Cuomo on his CNN show talked to one woman using a pseudonym who said, you know, she's got children, she's scared to death. She was lying low because she didn't want to be discovered by the Taliban. She didn't realize that we were down to the last flights. The communication has been awful. I, I, you know, when you, when you think about the huge diplomatic efforts that are made uh, to get out uh, prisoners of war and hostages and so forth, how in this situation, when we did, did Biden sent back, what, 6,000 troops, could we not get all Americans out who wanted to leave? And for, for the Secretary of State and others now to say, oh, you know, this effort isn't over, we're still going to try. Come on, we have no military assets there anymore. What are we going to do, beg the Taliban to let them go? Uh, it, it is heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking this was allowed to happen. Um, and so the, the last military cargo flight is out. Uh, any Americans who didn't get out and any Afghan allies who didn't get out are stuck there. Um, New York Times says, you know, Afghanistan has once more completed a cycle over the last 40 years for the fifth time since the Soviet invasion in 1979. One order has collapsed, another has risen. You had the Taliban take over in 1996. You had the U.S.-backed uh, Afghan government uh, taking over in the wake of 9-11 in 2001. And now here we are, 2021, two decades later, the Taliban are back in charge. It's up to the Taliban now, says the Times, to decide whether they will perpetuate the cycle of vengeance as they did upon seizing power uh, from a group of warlords in 1996 or will embrace the promises about acceptance and reconciliation. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath. All right, uh, let's get some different voices in here to this debate. I did some of this yesterday. There are some new people writing on this. Ross Douthat, New York Times. Uh, said that there was a strategic vision that there would be no prospect of victory, no end to corruption among our allies, um, no reason to be in Afghanistan, as opposed to any other failing state or potential terror haven, 
except we've already spent a lot of money and, and American blood has been shed there. Uh, I think it's about 2,500 American service members and civilians who died over the course of this two-decade war. So Douthat says he guessed the military and the bureaucracy would be able to frustrate the desire of every president to end this seemingly endless war. That happened with Obama, that happened with Trump, but it didn't happen with Biden. He promised withdrawal, and however shambolically, we have now actually withdrawn. But in every other way, says Ross Douthat, this has made the case for an even deeper cynicism about America's capacities as a superpower, our mission in Afghanistan, and the class of generals, officials, experts, and politicos who sustained its generational extension. And here's some interesting points. The Biden White House was clearly caught flat-footed by the speed of the Taliban advance. The president himself has appeared exhausted, aged, overmatched, making basic promises about getting every American home safely and seeing those promises overtaken by events. But here's the most interesting point. Douthat talks about the way that the media coverage and the political reaction uh, has led to reasonable tactical critiques that have often been woven together with anti-withdrawal arguments that are self-deceiving. In other words, you can argue that Biden botched this terribly, uh, should have gotten the civilians out before the military allowed them to close down Bagram Air Base and all that. But that kind of, has kind of gotten conflated with whether we should have gotten out of Afghanistan at all. Uh, and he closes by saying, you have generals and grand strategists who presided over this quagmire of folly and defeat, uh, fanning out across the TV networks and opinion pages to champion another 20 years in Afghanistan. You have the return of the media's liberal hawks and centrist Pentagon stenographers, unchastened by their own credulous contributions to the tr retreat of American power over the last 20 years. Now, National Review. Uh, New piece says that in Afghanistan, the demagogues who wanted to see an end to America's forever wars, regardless of consequences, got their wish. It has been a disaster. So this argues that the whole concept of, oh, we can't be stuck in these forever wars is essentially bogus. The magazine saying that as a result of the pullout, we have seen more war, not less. You know, sending back all of these troops about 7,000 NATO member state forces were pulled out, and then Biden sends back 6,000 U.S. Uh, service members. Withdrawal has not ushered in a new era of revitalized American leadership, just the opposite. It has delivered an abject humiliation for the United States and inspired a revolt of our closest allies. And he quotes uh, certain German and British officials as saying that President Biden's actions were shameful. Parliament held Biden in contempt. Francis Macron castigated Biden for sacrificing his moral responsibility not to abandon, abandon the Afghan people. Um, and the Islamic terror threat has been reinvigorated by America's defeat in Afghanistan. Leon Panetta, who was Obama's CIA director, saying, no question, the Taliban will provide a safe haven for al-Qaeda. Uh, okay, all of that might be true, but then you get to the question of, well, what is the alternative? Do we stay there another two years, five years, ten years? At what point, you know, does it just become a permanent propping up of a fragile regime? Uh, but for those who are saying this is absolute disaster for Joe Biden and his party, Matt Bai, writing in the Washington Post, says Democrats and all the leftist Cassandras on cable TV really need to calm down because, he argues, Afghanistan is, isn't going to define the Biden presidency, probably not even the next election. 
he has a point here which I want to let him make, but I kind of think that it is a defining moment that no one will forget when they go to the voting booth. Will it be one of many issues? And this is actually the question for the media. When we get to a month from now, three months from now, six months from now, when we're arguing about COVID and the economy and, and the, the trillion-dollar spending bills and all of that, and Afghanistan recedes into the past because the coverage will fade, uh, you know, except for a handful of correspondents, you know, Americans will tune it out. They were tuning it out at the end of the war. Will it loom as large in assessments of the Biden presidency as it does now, or people say, you know what, he, it was really uh, ugly and Biden screwed it up, but at least he got us out. Because remember, 70, 75% of, of Americans wanted out. Donald Trump wanted out, by the way. All right, back to the buy column. Matt Buy saying, Democratic Washington is in the grip of panic. The general feeling is that Biden was seen as competent and steady until his Afghanistan withdrawal. Some are urging Biden to start firing senior members of his cabinet. By the way, is nobody going to be fired over this debacle? Nobody at state or defense or in the military? I mean, it just seems like, I mean, I'm not usually a big proponent of, oh, you've got heads must roll, but, you know, this was a colossal world-class screw-up. You would think there'd be some accountability. All right. So what Biden does, he goes into history and he says, look, uh, there's a history of presidents getting pounded by unforeseen crises, especially overseas crises, early in their terms. For example, JFK uh, always regretted his embarrassing failure in the Bay of Pigs, which was a military operation in Cuba that he inherited from the Eisenhower administration. But of course, he had to take full responsibility. Ronald Reagan was absolutely reeling after the deaths of, uh, what was it, 241 Marines uh, in Beirut in 1983. And then, and, and it was Reagan, not his predecessor, who had deployed those Marines to Lebanon. And then soon after that horrible disaster pulled them out. Bill Clinton, in his first year, 18 U.S. service members were killed in Somalia, having been sent there in the final weeks of George H.W. Bush's term. So that's an interesting historical comparison. Now, I would argue that none of that Somalia... Even Lebanon um, rose to the level of a 20-year war in Afghanistan that was triggered by the searing attacks of 9-11. And even the withdrawal from Vietnam under Jerry Ford, who inherited, I talked about this in my column today, you know, of course, it was Richard Nixon who pulled out of Vietnam, made a peace deal with the North. Uh, and it was under Ford's watch that we had the you know people being airlifted off the roof of the embassy in Saigon. So a lot more to say about this, but there is a real question about how long this remains like a lead story, a top of the newscast story, a front page story. We shall see. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two, I mentioned yesterday, uh, I wanted to touch on an interview I did on Sunday's Media Buzz with Peter Ducey, Fox's White House correspondent, uh, because there was a fascinating thing at the end of Thursday's presser, which was the, the press conference that President Biden held on the day of or many hours after uh, the ISIS-K bombing at the Kabul airport. And he said, wait, I got to take one more question uh, from the guy who I think is the most interesting guy in the press, knowing full well that Ducey's going to ask him hard questions. And I asked Peter about that, and he said, well, I don't know who we poll before determining most interesting. I think he appreciates we have an audience, he's talking here about Fox, 
where there are a lot of people watching, and if he thinks that not everybody watching understands his policies the way he wants them to, um, this is a chance to reach that audience. I asked him also uh, about the question he asked, which essentially was, do you take responsibility for what's happened in the last two weeks? Remember, this is the day of the bombing. Everybody was heartbroken. You can see the president was very downcast, and Ducey talked about this. Uh, and he told me, I usually go to these presidential press conferences or a Jen Psaki press conference with notes just in case I'm challenged on the premise of a question, which happens sometimes. This is the first time the president has asked me about something, and I did not have the Trump withdrawal agreement or the most current agreement in my hand. So just to fill you in, Biden tried to turn it back on Ducey. This is a common presidential tactic. Well, let me ask you something, because I wish you'd talk about this. I wish you'd report this. Wasn't it Donald Trump who signed this withdrawal agreement with the Taliban. And Ducey said, yes, I understand what you're talking about. He actually, smartly in my view, didn't want to get drawn into answering the president's question because then it looks like you're debating Biden. It looks like you're no longer questioning him, you're debating him. So he resisted that. So I asked him about it and he said, well, my answer was very short because I didn't have the information you know, at my fingertips. And he said, after that, somebody came up in the press corps, came up to me and said, it's about time that Peter Ducey took questions from the president. He also said he did not want to be drawn into the trap of seeming to debate the president. And finally, I asked him about his relations to the Biden White House. He says, look, I haven't been a White House correspondent very long, but I have been on the Biden beat for two and a half years. He covered candidate Biden during the campaign. He was the guy out there, you know, just about every day. And he said, so I think the combination of a familiar face with somebody who is just kind of tall with crazy hair standing in the back that's easy for him to spot at some of these events might help. Uh, and he went on to say the president has been very generous with his time with Fox. So I said, well, being tall is a journalistic advantage. He's Ducey is a tall guy, and yes, you can, you can spot him at these news conferences. I never quite thought of it in that way. All right, let's move on to number three, the situation in New Orleans and Louisiana after Hurricane Ida. So the hurricane, although it was a Category 4, um, was not as devastating as expected. The latest death toll is four, which is a relief when you think about the roughly 1,500 people who were killed uh, 16 years ago through Hurricane Katrina. And that was when the levees broke and there was all this massive flooding. So if there's a bright side to Ida, it is that the levees held that the federal government helped pay most of the cost of $15 billion of these earthen walls protecting New Orleans, which has all these low-lying areas, from these storm-swept surges, as the Washington Post put it. And this was a test of all of those billions of dollars that were spent. Uh, so the good news is it, it, the city was not hit as hard because the levees held. Now, would the levees hold in a different kind of storm that had greater surges of the surrounding Gulf, nobody really knows. On the other hand, it's an absolute disaster there because more than a million people have lost power. Now, that's pretty common after hurricanes, but you have all the transmission lines going into the city of New Orleans having been severed, and you have the local utility there saying, it's going to be days before we assess the damage and figure out what to do. And there are even estimates that it could be weeks weeks where, where most people don't have basic electricity. That means a lot of people have to, you know, will be reluctant to go back to their homes, those who evacuated because of the warnings uh, over the storm. Um, and um, it's a pretty awful situation. 
And there are parts of Louisiana, according to the governor, John Bell Edwards, they, they, are just, they can't even be reached right now. So there are people who may need urgent help. Apparently the 911 system didn't work very well. And we don't even know the full uh, extent of the damage. Uh, the people who need immediate assistance, maybe medical assistance. Um, it's a pretty rough situation. And finally, I was watching Al Roker, you know, the veteran weather guy, reporting from uh, New Orleans, and he gave his report about the extent of the damage and the levees and the flooding and all that. And then, and then he said to Andrew Mitchell, oh, one more thing. I got to mention climate change here because it is making uh, these storms not only more deadly, but they are gathering strength even more quickly. And this is, you know, uh, it's not alarmist to say that climate change has changed has altered the nature. I mean, we see more and more of uh, more and more extreme weather, uh, more and more uh, of these Category Four and Category Five hurricanes. But the real danger here is this: Ida gains strength so quickly, in, in you know what meteorologists say is just a matter of hours because that it went to you know 100 mile an hour winds and 150 mile an hour winds. Is that there wasn't as much time as there ordinarily has been historically for authorities and NOAA and the Weather Service to urge people who are directly in the path of the storm to get out. In other words, you don't not as much time for hurricane preparations and putting up sandbags and, um, you know, securing the windows in your house. So if these storms are reaching this killer intensity so much more quickly because of climate change, then it limits the ability of people to get out, to secure their property and all of that. So that's pretty troubling. Um, and this is not just Al Roker's opinion, obviously, but I happen to see him make this point. All right, let's move on to number four. Uh, looking back at the uh, COVID situation, I, I got to lead the segment with this. This is a piece in the Huff Post, so obviously it's from a liberal perspective. But uh, a guy who's running uh, for office, a Republican in Pennsylvania, um, is kind of threatened to physically remove school board members who try to enact mask mandates. I understand this is a very sensitive subject. A lot of parents may not agree with mask mandates. You also have a situation in Florida where um, Governor Ron DeSantis has now carried out his threat to withhold the salaries of school board members and local officials who impose mask mandates. It includes several of the largest school systems in the state of Florida. And the Biden administration says, well, they'll use federal money to, to restore those salaries or make up for those salaries. And even Steve Lynch, is running for county executive in Northampton County, PA. He gave a speech at a rally in Harrisburg, and he said the following, forget going into these school boards with freaking data. You go into these school boards to remove them, he said. I'm going in with 20 strong men, and I'm going to give them an option. They can leave or they can be removed. Um, excuse me, sir, but doesn't that sound awfully close to mob violence? And then... He went on to say this. It's kind of like men should be men. Okay, here, these are these are his exact words. Men, where are you? Men, wake up, smell the coffee, let's go. Men, make men great again. Make men, men again. Men, men, let's go, men. I need you. I need you in the coming weeks because when we walk into those school boards, we're going to have everything we need to do to go in there with those nine to nothing school boards that voted to put these masks back on the children with no scientific. It's done. What are women voters going to think about this? I don't know. I mean, he kind of said the quiet part out loud. Meanwhile, uh, Juliet Kayyem, she was an Obama administration official, so she's clearly a partisan, but um, writing in The Atlantic, uh, has this to say about the uh, you know significant minority people who are not getting vaccinated. 
she talks about, you know, companies and local governments now demanding your vaccination. And she says, you know, this is not just executive suites and human resources offices. Plenty of other Americans are craving more certainty. Bars and restaurants that want to stay open are beginning to check vax cards. Um, also, couples throwing weddings are demanding their guests upload proof of vaccination. These people disinviting their anti-vaxxer relatives are saying something important. Getting a shot to protect yourself and others from COVID-19 is both a social responsibility and the best way to hasten the end of the pandemic. She goes on to say, Juliet Kayem, the vaccinated have for far too long carried the burden of the pandemic. In theory, unvaccinated people should be taking greater precautions, but every poll shows that vaxxed people are more likely to wear masks in public, refrain from unnecessary travel, and avoid large group settings. Now, she goes on to say that public health officials could keep trying to figure out ways to persuade the vaccinated to get shots, and maybe they could come up with some great new message where all the others have failed. If so, that would be fantastic. But begging is not a strategy. And uh, Kayyem closes this piece by saying, people in the crisis management field have made peace with blanket one-size-fits-all policies that some individuals don't like. When a ship is going down, passengers aren't given the luxury of quibbling with the color or design of the life vest. And they can't dither forever about whether to put one on or not. Now, that sounds pretty harsh and obviously kind of waves away the argument for individual freedom. But, you know, it is true that when people don't get vaccinated and you still have, I don't know, is it about 80 or 85 million Americans who, for whatever reason, want to, haven't, haven't gotten around to it, refuse, are hesitant um, to get these shots, that that imposes a cost on the rest of society. They are more likely to get it and transmit it. And, you know, I've read before and I've talked before about pieces where there's growing anger from those who did their duty, getting vaccinated shots, even uh, talking about uh, going to get booster shots, which may be available uh, beginning the month of September. Uh, Feeling that we've tried and tried and tried and tried to persuade the unvaxxed to sort of do their civic duty. How many times have you heard President Biden say it's patriotic to get these shots? And by and large, we've hit a wall. I mean, the numbers are creeping up, but not fast enough. So that's what The Atlantic says. And finally, number five, fascinating piece in Axios about dating. Uh, Apparently, you know, the rise of social distancing during the pandemic made popular a thing called video dates where, you know, you couldn't get together with somebody because everything was shut down. So you maybe found them on a dating site and you kind of commune with them over Zoom or FaceTime or whatever you use and you decide whether you like the person. Well, now that may not be going away. Axios says, look, dating's expensive. Many people are deciding they'd rather meet virtually first in case it doesn't work out. It's kind of like, uh, you know, check it out without having to leave your house and <laughs> buy somebody dinner, right? Um, average American spends a total of about $700 a year on dates. I didn't know there was a study about that. Um, one behavioral scientist is quoted as saying the pandemic was a jolt to our systems. Video chat was normalized. It's only natural it would extend to dating because dates can be really costly and time-consuming. So now you can kind of do the first impression thing, get a sense of the person you're interested in dating. 
Um, so I guess there's a dating site called Hinge, which did a survey that said almost no Hinge users at the beginning of, the, of COVID-19 did virtual dates. But now, close to half of them, 44%, have been on a video date. And 65% of those people say they'll incorporate virtual dating into their routines, even when it's safe to see people in person. 44% of Hinge users say they're nervous about dating again. This is interesting. Because they worry their social skills may have atrophied during the pandemic. So part of it is, all right, let's check the person out and see if I really want to see this person in person, man or woman. Secondly, it's, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of money like whining and dining these people. So let's uh, kind of see how they are on FaceTime or Google Hangout or whatever. And, you know, if, if, I, if they pass the audition, well, then we can get together and go out for a nice meal or go to the movies or whatever it is people still do. Um, and finally, I, I'm not so good at this stuff anymore. I kind of forgot how to do the small talk. Oh, tell me more. Looking into somebody's eyes, fascinated. But I know how to do it on Zoom. We all know how to do it on Zoom. Uh, and then there's sort of, you know, people who are saying, well, there's Zoom fatigue and maybe that's not going to work out so well. But nevertheless, that's where this is going. Maybe in the future, nobody will ever have to leave their house for anything except bringing home food and everything will be virtual. But I uh, am being a little bit sarcastic here. Uh, always enjoy having you along for the ride. Hope you'll subscribe to our little podcast here. Apple iTunes is a very good place to do it. And we're back here tomorrow with more Buzzfeed. Buzzfeed From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.